Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 116. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Peter Vincent. Peter, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Peter Vincent is an artist, an author, a photographer, who's been working with the landscape at the Bonneville Salt Flats for over 20 years, combining it with the subculture of the land speed racing and the pop culture of American hot rods. He's a regular at the Salt every August for Speed Week, and he never misses this gathering, ever. He's published numerous books with the automobile, and his work has been displayed in museums across the country, including many permanent collections. His fourth book, The Bonneville Salt Flats, 20 Years of Photography, was released in the fall of 2013. And Peter's fifth book, The Rolling Bones, is due out in the late fall of next year, 2015. His images have been published in many magazines, including the Rotter's Journal and American Rotter, and one of Peter's photographs hangs in my home, I'm proud to say. So, Peter, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take some time and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Well, it's all kind of combined with my influences in life. From an art standpoint, that means everything. It means every place I've lived. I, I lived in Salt Lake. I lived in Arkansas. I lived in Chicago. I remember going to the Museum of Science and Industry and the Art Institute and so forth and so forth when I was in the third, fourth, and fifth grades and then moving to California and discovering, I think, a visual world that uh, opened up in that was the mid-'50s and discovering the automotive subculture, pop culture, and uh, rock and roll music. It all happened at the same time, and uh, it was it was an eye-opener for me. And since that period of time, I've always been interested in the visual and uh, how things attract me and why they speak to me the way they do. Uh, you see something that is a photograph or a film or, or whatever in it, it's... It's an information 
exchange and how it exchanges information is important. We moved from California to Idaho. I learned a completely different kind of a blue-collar, Pocatello, Idaho atmosphere before we moved back to California. And I, I, I went to high school in Pocatello, and I value that time highly because it showed me a different side of life, and it also gave me an appreciation for the high desert and a different type of light, a different type of light than you find in the Bay Area, and a different type of lifestyle. We used to travel all over the West. My father was a traveler, so every year we'd travel any place from Death Valley to the to the uh, petrified forest, to the painted desert, to southern Utah, to uh, back east, Chicago, east coast, and so forth and so forth. So I guess you could say everything that I've been through in my life has experienced, has caused me to reflect and see things the way that I do. Sometime in the, let's see, I guess it was the uh, late 60s, which I was partially living in the Bay Area and partially living in Idaho. So I experienced the 60s in the Bay Area from a standpoint of music and cultural change and social change, but also got a chance to get away from it, to come to Idaho, which is a little bit quieter and more subdued. Oh, gosh, I'll bet. (laughs) (laughs) You get tired of the Bay Area, so you'd come to Idaho, and then you get bored in Idaho, so you go back to the Bay Area for a little while, and my parents were living down in the Bay Area at the time, and that was back in the days when you could have residency in more than one place, and you didn't get clamped down, before the advent of computers running everything. Right. And So I could go to school in California as a resident and go to school in Idaho as a resident. It was an interesting period of time, but I really believe one of the most influential periods of time time was when we moved to California and I all of a sudden my visual world woke up and that's when I discovered automotive stuff the hot rod and the subculture of custom cars and sports cars and Porsche speedsters and uh, gullwing Mercedes and all this sort of stuff it was it was a period of time where everything everything kind of happened and during the the 50s, 60s, and up into the 70s, I had a chance to experience Laguna Seca and Sears Point and places like this for automotive stuff from Trans Am racing to Can Am racing to sports cars to hot rods to customs. And so it really, I don't place a higher value on any one of them. Each one of them has a kind of special compartment that it fits in. And I enjoy them all equally. Steve Mole up in Oakland does one-off cars. He built a car called the Gatto for Bill Grimsley that is uh, a takeoff of uh, a late 1950s, early 60s uh, GT Coupe that's just it's just beautiful. It's, it's an incredibly hand-built, handcrafted car that has all the right lines, all the right forms, and... Uh, it takes me back to that era, which happens to be one of my favorite eras in automotive history. And uh, there was a golden era back then for uh, anything from drag racing to Trans Am racing to uh, Can Am racing that was kind of open-ended rules and not so clamped down and not so corporate that it became equalized with the money and the way that you raced. 
I, I feel fortunate to have grown up under that era. Oh, I can relate to it in some respects. I'm a little bit younger than you, but you experienced those 60s and even the 50s in an era that was really magical, and you're so fortunate for it, and it really comes through in your photography and the imagery that you produce, and I can tell in your passion and your voice and the life which you lived. What I'd love to do as we continue on this journey about you and your life is I always like to start with a success quote. And this is a saying that has been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a really great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Peter, take the wheel. Well, I guess the best quote I got ever was from my father. He told me at a very young age to find something you have a passion for to do. Because he says it's very important to be happy with what you're doing every day of your life. He didn't realize I was going to end up in fine art, which is probably one of the worst places financially to end up, but uh, also one of the most rewarding places I've ever found, where you're free to create and communicate in any way you want. It's led me from mechanical engineering to architecture, a degree in architecture, to a, a master's of fine arts and photography. And it's, it's taken me through a path that uh, has enabled me visually to appreciate the mechanics of something, particularly automotive or World War II airplane culture, up through uh, you know later cultures and airplanes and so forth. But the automotive stuff, just really hit me and it was it was uh anything from motorcycles to cars i need to tell you about a particular time we just moved from chicago i was in the fifth grade it was about 1955 it was a great great moment in my life because all of a sudden visually i became aware of everything that was around me the pop culture the the uh the music changed rock and roll started happening i saw my first custom car partially finished. What struck me the most about the car was it was a 1949 Merc chopped, dropped, a lot of primer spots, no grill, Frenched in headlights and so forth and so forth. And uh, it was the act of creation that got to me more than anything about that car. I mean, the car was gorgeous. And what he was doing to it all he functionally improved the actual design of the car, but uh, the act of the creation was what really got to me. And uh, since then, I've always been uh, interested in the the idea, the visual art, and the visual the visualness of what is portrayed. I guess I guess that's that's probably a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> You actually jumped ahead a bit to my next question and answered it in a really wonderful way. I always like to ask my guests if there's a pivotal moment in their life when they really realized they were a car guy. And I think that was your moment in many ways and even in more ways than you knew at the moment with your life and where you went with your life and the creative side of your life. That was wonderful. I love that. And especially the way you described it was a work in motion. It wasn't a finished car. You could see the process happening. And that's definitely how you think as a person. What I'd love to do now is is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood and maybe get our hands a little dirty and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure you faced in your career. But more importantly, share with me how you overcame that situation. 
and what you learned from it? I'd say probably one of the biggest challenges was when I decided finally, I switched from mechanical engineering because it wasn't taking me where I wanted to go creatively. But it taught me a lot about three-dimensional geometry and so forth and so forth, and the machine work, and I still love machines, and I, I love the idea of machines. But I went into architecture because architecture at that time was still considered a fine art. And, uh, you know, you look at the designs of Frank Lloyd Wright or Mies van der Rohe or Le Corbusier or, and whoever. And then right in the middle of my architecture degree, I picked up a popular photography magazine and started looking at the works of Adams and Strand and both Westons, Breton, Edward Weston and Morley Bear and, you know, Steichen and, and people from all over the world that were doing black and white imagery is fine art, and it was being recognized as fine art, and I knew right at that moment that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Now, the problem with that is how do you make a living? <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's the biggest thing to overcome is you have to find something, like my father said, find something you have a for you have a passion to do and and do that i found art i found photography and uh everything i did after that was trying to learn everything i could about photography and i bought books bought all the ansel adams series on the zone system and uh minor white series on the zone system and i was shooting with large format cameras and i'd go out and I'd shoot at everything everything and uh from automotive stuff to drag racing to buildings to architecture to old buildings to people to whatever from that i just kept developing my aesthetic i guess and kept learning from people and by emulating an ansel adams picture or a weston picture or a architectural picture by morley bear or steichen or Dwayne michaels or Heineken or whatever, I learned by l watching what these people did, and I guess developed my own vision from a combination of everything I learned from. And for me, you learn from all the early art, and it doesn't matter what art. I mean, uh, you know, a Jackson Pollock painting or a Motherwell painting or a Tom Fritz painting or any of these people. Uh, we used to get the Saturday Evening Post and Norman Rockwell on the cover. I'd see those every week, and they'd always make a, an impression on me. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess there there was really not a stumbling block other than trying to figure out how to make a living off of it. And I just jumped into it and have been doing it ever since. <laughs> just embraced it. <laughs> well, what what I did was is I found... This was back in the days when you could find work. I never had trouble finding work, which I think is tough for kids nowadays to find something that they can make a living at that has some meaning and uh, and still pays fairly well. And I did computer chip design work because of an architecture degree. We designed the actual physical elements of the computer chips. Hmm. And I didn't do electrical engineering design. I did the visual design of the actual layers in the computer chip. I believe if you have a design background and you learn the design, the physical parameters of any design, you can design probably anything. Sure. Once I learned that, I was always able to get work as a designer 
or graphic artists or whatever. I worked in television. I worked in computer chip design. I taught photography. And all the time, all these things were supporting my artwork mm-hmm. and enabling me to do enough photography to create books. And it's, it's a question of meeting the right people at the right time. What I wanted to talk about next you were just starting to get into, and that's really what I like to do is I call it shifting gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and and have you share a story about an aha moment in your career, a a time when you realized that, you know what, I think I can do this. I can have a career, a creative career, and make a living. And you shared some of that with us. Is there a moment in time you can share that you might call an aha moment and tell us how you turned that into a success? Well, really, I guess an aha moment for me was I was in the final two years of an architectural degree, and I really love architecture today, even today. still consider it a fine art and have many friends that are in the field of architecture. But I discovered photography in the middle of that. Something snapped in my head that said, this is what I'm going to do, period, for the rest of my life. And uh, there was never any question about it. You know, there was never any second thoughts or any backup or any uh, changing of mind or any buyer's regret later down the road or anything. It's always served me well in communicating what I want to leave for my life, I guess, to say that I've done something. I was here. I was here. Yeah. I was here, and I left something that mattered to somebody somewhere, hopefully. Well, you were fortunate in that you found that that direction early on as well. Many people don't find it very early on. It goes back to the original quote my father gave me, is find mm-hmm. something you have a passion for and go do it. Yeah, great advice from your father. Yeah, I, I, I look at that today, and that's, that's part of the reason I am where I am, and it's not the money, it's the doing, it's the creating. It's the, you need enough money to do it, but it's not the idea of having so much money that you can just do whatever you want. I mean, there's an idea of pushing through it and still doing it and mm. uh, enabling yourself to do it and allowing yourself to do it. It saved me a lot of times when I've been in one of the opposite of the aha moments. <laughs> the uh-oh moments? <laughs> Yeah, the uh-oh moment. <laughs> yeah. I'll use photography to get me back on track. Oh, that's fantastic. And help to, help define what I am as a person. It's it's what I am. It's what I do. Yeah. How about proudest moments? Is there, and you've probably had several, but is there one that stands out in your mind that is really a, a proud moment for you in your career as a photographer? I developed a friendship with uh, Philip Lanier, who was the chief curator at the Oakland Museum of California. And he was curating a show for the San Francisco Modern. He asked me to do some photography for it. And uh, it was on Vern Tardell, one of the great builders of original hot rods. Through Idaho Art Grants, I was able to go down to California and spend some time photographing and doing all the pre-work and so forth. And I, I'll never forget the opening night. It's a real highlight. I mean, it was, it was fun to see two subcultures mix. You, fi- you had the fine art subculture, and then you had the hot rod subculture, and then just watch, because I have a foot in both places. 
and to watch those two groups kind of come together and realize that, wow, there's a lot of similarities here. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special car? Now, I know you have had a very eclectic mix of cars in your life. You've had many cars. What was the first one that was really special to you? And perhaps you could share a memory you had with that vehicle. Oh, boy. That's really difficult. Your first car is always very special. I bought my first car when I was 15, but it wasn't the car. It was just it was a car I could afford and so forth. And I have to say that my first car that probably made the biggest impression on me was I bought a 1959 Porsche Convertible D. Ooh, nice. I bought it from a guy who also had a gullwing Mercedes parked next to it that he used to show down at Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. So it was a very nice 59 Convertible D. And it was in very good condition. And this was back in the days when you could buy speedsters and so forth for $2,000. You could walk into a Porsche dealer and buy a brand new Porsche for $5,000. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> the speedsters <laughs> have kind of gone in a whole other direction of late. Well, so have convertible Ds oh, because yes. that was the only the only year they were made was 1959. Yeah, yeah, they had the roll-up windows, which was made them a little more comfortable, yep. with a little higher windshield than the Speedster. Beautiful car. Oh, it's just a wonderful car. And I'll never forget, I bought it down in Palo Alto, California. And at the time, I was going to school in Idaho University. And I drove back across Nevada. And I'll never forget the curve of the fenders and the hood and Mm. the sound of the exhaust and just, just cruising. Yeah. Just driving for the sake of driving. I mean, cars to me were a sense of freedom. If you lived in the West, if you had a car, you could go wherever you wanted. That made a difference. If you had the right car, you could go wherever you wanted and you could be comfortable and you could have a sense of coolness (laughs) that really wasn't trying to be cool. It just, you had something that you really enjoyed driving. There was an aesthetic about the drive and the way the car sounded and the way the car performed and the whole thing rolled into one and it kind of fell into the art side because you started appreciating the fine art of the automobile. Right. And, you know, I've had many other cars than that, but that car, for some reason, really stood out. And that's the one that I wish I hadn't sold. Well, you, <laughs> you just answered my next question about seller's remorse. And I can, I can appreciate that because I love Porsches. I love Porsche 356s. They are just... Uh, yeah, something special. So you jumped ahead, but you did great because that first special car being the one that you wish you could have back, I understand that one. Absolutely. How about current projects? Are you working on a, a project right now that you're really excited and fired up about? I know I mentioned a book that's coming out next year. Is Would that be the one? Well, that's one project that I'm very excited about. We did a cover for Hop Up Magazine in 19... 19- Oh, it was 92, mm-hmm. and uh, it was June 6th, and we did it down at El Mirage. We we got seven thirty-two coupes that we were going to arrange and shoot out at El Mirage, and we went out there about 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon and stayed until dark. And I'll tell you, the light out there is just, it's a beautiful place to photograph. It's phenomenal. And we did driving pictures. We did group pictures. And we ended up with a photograph that's called Seven Coops. 
that became a limited edition print through Motor Books, who I was was my publisher at the time when I was doing books. Mm-hmm. They did a series of limited edition of prints, and that most popular limited edition print that was ever done. Uh, and it was, it's just a picture of seven coops out in the middle of the desert, kind of arranged in a certain way to emulate a piece of artwork also and communicate in a certain way and we had all day to do it and we just it was i shot tons and tons of film on this and that got me into the rolling bones which now i've been following them since 1992 and i've driven across country with them a couple of times we've gotten them into monument valley to photograph some of their cars in monument valley and so forth and so forth so it's it's time to really do a book on them that's foremost a project mm-hmm. for me right at the moment is I do photography and I do books. We are trying to do kind of a niche or a boutique photography book type thing. There's a, a group there's a group out there called Twenty First Editions that does limited edition books and that's kinda of what we're aiming towards is very low run specialized books are not $35, 40 $50 books. They're $85 to $100 books. And uh, we don't sell as many of them, but we only sell so many. Mm-hmm. We're able to keep the quality up and make the book substantial enough to where people want it. We're entering into new phases. The publishing empire is changing drastically because of the uh, digital world sure. and the e-books and so forth. Right now, I would like to say I would never do an e-book mm-hmm. because I'm a photographer. And, you know, you see pictures on a screen. It's not the same as seeing an actual image as a piece of artwork that's in a book or on the wall or in a museum or something like that. It, it's just you, you lose something. Now, this is a funny question. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? And why? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying that a fellow artist, Earl Cleworth, was on Cars Yeah several months ago, and he's the one that's responsible for this question because I had a different question for people, and he asked me if I would change the question up to this, and it's become a really fun question for me because it really exposes people's personalities in a sense. So uh-huh. it's your turn. What kind of car would Peter Vincent be? Oh, boy. That's that's a hard one because my interests go from... Uh, but it's not about the car you like. It's who you are and how that relates to the kind of car you would be. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> see, that makes it very difficult for me because part of what I am is the aesthetic of the car. Sure, sure. And uh, I, I have to admit, one of my favorite all-time automobiles, because of the aesthetic of the cars, is a Ferrari G- GTO 250. Of course, yeah, beautiful. I know there's only so many of them available. I know I'm never going to own one, but the design and the simplicity and the functionality of that car is just wonderful. Yeah. And yet, on the other side of that, I just picked up a car about a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago, that's an old 1960s fuel coupe from the L.A. area called the 15-ounce coupe. Mm. And come to find out, it's fairly well-known down in L.A., and it's considered quite collectible in a sense. Nice. 
that it has history, and I've got the original car now parked in my garage. Oh, and, very uh, cool. And we're going to try and add some new history to it, but without changing the history of the car. I got together with some friends of mine down in California, Pete Eastwood and Pat Ganell, and they looked at the car and... <laughs> They said, well, you either have to do this or this or this or this to restore it, and but you shouldn't do this. And, of course, everybody's got opinions on it. Somewhere between the Ferrari 250 GTO and the 15-ounce coupe is where I would reside. And hey, they're, so far, they're so far apart. The last engine that was in the 15-ounce coupe was a 4,500-horsepower Donovan blown 90% nitro run engine. Oh my the gosh. angriest sounding thing I had ever heard. Yeah. Oh my and I gosh. kept seeing this on uh, YouTube, and I kept looking at the car, and it took me two years to track this thing down. It just has the look. It has the look of aggressive anger. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the beauty of the Ferrari, but somewhere in between there, and you mix the two together, and one of the reasons I like the Ferrari... 250 is that it is spartan it is it is not overdone they knew when to stop it's form follows function it's it's kind of like an architectural background thing it, it's uh you build something that has exactly what it needs to do what it has to do okay peter we're entering what i call the last lap and this is where i'm going to fire off a series of questions and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers so you buckled up and ready yep okay what's the best automotive advice you've ever received buy good parts buy good parts perfect could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success uh learning to combine the art and the automotive world Ah, which was the most difficult place for me to be i like real landscapes i like timeless images of automotive stuff that doesn't have a date stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not photographed next to a uh, a 75 Ford pickup or something like this or in somebody's driveway, but it's photographed in a landscape. Yeah. And this is part of my Ansel Adams Weston background is formalistically being able to find a place to photograph. In Bonneville, when I walked out on the salt at Bonneville the very first time, I said, this is a place that this is the real deal. It changes constantly, and as long as you start learning how to adapt to the changes, that's probably uh, a very big moment for me is, is discovering how to combine that. And I've worked trying to combine just photographing cars, which the automotive magazines want you to do in a good way, but to be able to push the fine art level into it and to be able to make that image museum-worthy plus magazine-worthy and, yeah. and somehow or other combine the two, that's probably a, a big deal for me. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a real quick story here, a real pivotal story for me, uh-huh. and this happened just a few years ago, is Pat Foster, Cole Foster's father of the Salinas Boys, is well known for his drag racing ability back in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He worked for Mickey Thompson on the Challenger 2 project, which is the one that Danny Thompson now is is starting to bring out. And they just finished it, and it's made his first run 
first pass this this year, in mm-hmm. fact. And Pat Foster moved to Moscow, Idaho, and started building dragsters in Moscow, Idaho. Well, nobody comes to Moscow, Idaho to do stuff like that. And I met Pat, and we became very, very, very close friends, and uh, he became part of our family almost. He knew everything. He knew how to build. He knew how to engineer. He knew how to crew. He knew how to drive. And if you look back at his history, he's as well known in the drag racing world as Gartlets or anybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, having a chance to be around somebody like that and learn about the history they've gone through is like meeting. It'd be like meeting Mark Donahue for Trans Am Racing, or uh, you're, you're talking to somebody who's done it, who's been there, right. who's had the experience, and uh, yeah. that to me was a pivotal moment, too, yeah. and that was a special time. And awesome. How about books, Peter? Other than your own books, is there a book that you could share with the listeners that you've really enjoyed and you would recommend? Yeah, Dean Batchelor's book. I have to admit that that book is the one that uh, really... For some reason, that that really that book really caught me, and I thought it was a beautiful, be- well put together. I just uh, recently got a book from uh, that Peter Harholt, another photographer friend of mine, did that uh, about the Can Am series. I'm chasing him down to be a guest on this show. So, Peter, if you're listening, give me a call. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a he's a good guy. He's a good photographer, and uh, I've enjoyed his work quite a bit, and I have a lot of respect for it. So awesome! Well, I'll remind our listeners that I'll put links to these resources up at carsyeah.com/slash Peter Vincent, and you can look these up. Click on the links and find these great resources that he shared with us. So, Peter, I'm up to the checkered flag here, and this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and this is something you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, but money's no object. I'm going to buy you whatever you'd like today. What would that vehicle be and why? I'd have to say a 250 GTO Ferrari. Oh, you're going to break my bank account today, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to drive it. Good for you. I appreciate and, that. And uh, yeah. I, 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 the fact of just having that out on the road uh, is is like that's that's like form follows function. That's like yeah. fine art. Yeah. I for some reason this car has always been at a forefront. You know, I could put a Porsche Speedster next to it. There are other cars, you know, that I could I would say would be equal to it, but uh, that one's always been up there. Uh, Design wise. And the aesthetic of the car, I think, is 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 ultimately formidable. I mean, it's 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 built to drive, and it's uh, it has that look. It has that beautiful flow. Yep, it's a fantastic car. Well, Peter, you've taken us on a great ride today, and and I've really enjoyed your stories and talking with you. I think we could talk for hours. I want to thank you for sharing your journey in your life with me and the Cars Yeah listeners. Would you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that GTO? (laughs) Find your passion and do it. And do it now. That's great. Well, listeners, again, the best way you can learn more about everything we've shared today is at carsyeah.com. And, Peter, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? Uh, I have a website, www.petervincentphotographer.com. 
Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that goes up on your show notes page with a link to that so that people can see your beautiful photography. And it's been so much fun for me to be talking to the guy whose photograph hung above my desk for many, many years. Thank you for, for providing me with that inspiration. And I want to thank you for being so generous again today with your time and your expertise and, and for sharing your stories. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.